Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's Art Director. In today's episode, I speak with Brad Schreiber, a writer of all media and the 2022 recipient of the William Randolph Hearst Award for Outstanding Service in Professional Journalism. He has authored many books and written, produced, and directed theater, film, television, and radio. His last three books were Music is Power, about the social-political impact of music since the early 20th century, Revolution's End, the Patty Hearst Kidnapping, Mind Control, and the Secret History of Donald DeFries in the SLA, and Becoming Jimi Hendrix, co-written with Stephen Roby. He currently has two projects in progress. One is a book about gangster rap, policing, and race with Ron Stallworth, author of Black Klansman, which will hopefully be released on Hachette imprint Legacy Lit later this year. The other is shaping up to be a humanistic exploration into people's psychological relationship with music. Before our interview, we had a few exchanges to identify subjects, and during our conversation this past February, we spent much of our time discussing our own relationships and experiences with music, as well as going into Brad's upbringing and the role of his parents in molding his path towards a creative career. You can find more info about his work at bradschreiber.com. So your book, Music is Power, is about the socio-political um, movements uh, through music and the, the power of music to uh, as a socio-political force. Um, so in a more general sense, uh, because I feel like oftentimes um, music and arts are relegated to merely entertainment, uh, in a general sense, how would you explain the importance of art in your personal life and the, the importance in greater society? Well, it's crucial to me, of course, because I consider myself a creative artist and that's how I exist. Uh, sometimes um, creative artists do not make a lot of money or even succeed on a large scale. But one of the things that interests me in talking with you, John, is the idea that art serves a function beyond a career. And in some way, for some people, it's very necessary to have that expression of your life in the creative arts, whatever it is. That doesn't, to me, mean that you're a novelist or you're making a film or you're a musician necessarily. Your approach to life can be creative, even in the way you decorate a house or create a garden or, you know, work with a child who has an art project. You know, all these things are an expression of your creative spirit. And some people really suffer if they don't have an outlet for creative expression. Um, I... I came from parents who were, I thought, incredibly brilliant <laughs> creative artists mm -hmm. who did not succeed um, in a wide sense of that word um, as artists, as uh, people who made a great living from it. My father, Andrew, 
was um, a very good visual artist in New York, and he actually got a scholarship to the Art Students League, you know, down the street mm -hmm. from Carnegie Hall. And that was no easy feat. Uh, he told me that there were like 20,000 applicants when he went in the 1940s, and he got a scholarship. And he had some um, art exhibits in his life. My mother, Mona, was a writer and an actress. She worked a little bit in Off-Broadway. She published in magazines and newspapers. Unfortunately, she did not get some of her uh, prose, her books, published in her lifetime. But uh, she was an excellent teacher, and she instilled in me the interest and the ability, I believe, to teach. And um, so I had a very, very strong creative influence, which ironically, I had this portrait, this genetic pool of really wonderfully creative parents who, when they saw that I was good at acting and writing, thought, well, that's nice while well, you're in high school and, oh, you've got this comedy group in your 20s, but what are you going to do with your life? How are you going to succeed? How are you going to survive? And uh, surely it was uh, difficult at times, but they did not know for a certain period of time. And that's the conundrum with parenting. My parents didn't know that I really was committed no matter what it took to be a creative artist in this society. Um, my father was, um, he did many things, including tool and die during the Second World War. He had this great blend of both the logical and the creative. He's a guy who could paint, and then he could fix something in his workshop. He was just <laughs> phenomenal that way. Um, he did have a blue-collar jobs. Then he went into teaching, and inevitably he formed um, what became special education on the high school level in the United States. Mom, her creative outlets um, were very important to her, but also she unfortunately was very ill a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And between her responsibilities at home, um, a chronic illness, and then the vagaries of being a creative artist, it was secondary to her, even though it was very important. And I think she was an amazing teacher and actually a very good writer, not just because she was my mom. But um, mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say that um, she should have had, um, I think, more renown. She channeled it by creating a... Uh, a writer's contest in the town she lived in, Foster City, which is in San Mateo County, Northern California. So she created this um, writer's contest that uh, I think is still running. It certainly ran quite a while. And then um, when she passed away, I honored her by creating the Mona Schreiber Prize for humorous fiction and nonfiction, which I ran for 20 years. And it was a worldwide contest, and I gave away $500, $250, and $100 for the three essays that I deemed were the uh, most amusing. A lot of your earlier books are, are about comedy, and I was wondering how comedy worked into 
your interest in in music um and you know it seemed like that's where you were coming from uh so i would like to hear more about that about about starting uh doing comedy in your 20s and then how that um trying to work it out with your parents of like this is what i really want to do with my life yes i i actually started acting and writing in high school at Burlingham High School. Um, I took drama there as well as being the editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper, the Burlingame Bee. And when I went to San Francisco State, my best friend Brian Schindel and I met a third person, Nick Epstein, and we created a professional comedy group while going to San Francisco State. And we were working on the outside. We were making a living as the Burlingame Philharmonic Orchestra. My parents um, were tentatively happy about that. They thought, it's nice, Brad has a creative outlet, and meanwhile I was doing horrible jobs I hated and was very miserable because I wasn't <laughs> truly living a creative life. I was dabbling in comedy clubs at night, and during the day was doing horrible jobs. Now, the idea of music is something that was instilled in, in me from both my parents from a very early age, much earlier than when I was actually being a professional comedian, dramatist. I also worked in radio and so forth and so on. That love really was instilled by listening to my parents and their records. My father did not like popular music at all. One of the great ironies of me writing about Jimi Hendrix and other music, um, including very abrasive sounding music, um, punk, um, heavy metal, um, is that my father not only didn't like that kind of music, he thought, and this will date me, he thought that the Beatles were atonal. He, he literally did not use the word atonal properly because it was not uh, Stockhausen and it was not John right. Cage. It was the Beatle harmonies that he didn't care for because he knew about and loved classical. And he knew a lot about it. And I went into a trance the first time I heard Glenn Gould playing Johann Sebastian Bach. And... I was in a trance when I heard some of Beethoven for the first time. Um, um, I had my own preferences even as a kid of seven, eight, nine in classical music. I'm not saying I was an expert. My mother, meanwhile, she was into what was called um, world music then. We might call it international music. Uh, she also knew a lot about the Broadway stage, having been a performer. So she had soundtracks to movies and soundtracks to musicals. So I was listening to music from different countries, like Theodore Bickel's music. I was listening to folk music and that tradition from Peter, Paul, and Mary, um, and Harry Belafonte and the Caribbean experience. I was listening to all this stuff before I heard rock and roll. Right. And then, long story short, my whole life changed 
not only when I first heard rock and roll, but when I first heard Jimi Hendrix playing Third Stone from the Sun. And I said, no human being I've ever heard in my young teenage life can take feedback from a guitar and make it melodic and controlled mm -hmm. and even percussive. This is, this is a guy whose ability on electric guitar is beyond, and the song was about wiping out the earth except for the chickens. And it was in the voice of a spaceman. And it was funny, and it was weird, and it was um, kind of morbid, and it, and it was also kind of haunting. And I said to myself, this is not like any rock and roll I've ever heard. And of course, years later, I was honored to meet Steve Roby, a world-renowned Hendrix historian, and co-write with him, Becoming Jimi Hendrix. And um, beca became enamored of him, even though I never met him. Basically wound up knowing more about his early life than virtually anybody on the face of the globe. And when I learned how he suffered in life, it was uh, incredible that he ever succeeded. And now back to our conversation with Brad Schreiber, author of Music is Power. What would you say is your main like era of of music? Like when were you, um, I guess, you know, usually for most people that's like 14 to 18 uh, is, is the most impactful time period of their music. Um, but what, what would you say is the, the time period that you connect with the most, like years-wise? That's a great question, John. And, and also it's a question that I'm planning to address because I'm fascinated by it too. In this book that I'm, I'm working on, um, I don't have a working title, but it is basically about music and mood, the effect on, of music on the brain, the body, the spirit, of uh, political action, so forth and so on. I've always been fascinated by when was um, when was the time that you fell in love and when was the peak experience of music is more important to me now, the creative expression is more important in my daily life than it will be ever again. And that's how I kind of interpret your, your question. Mm -hmm. And the honest-to-God truth is it hasn't really changed so much. When I, when I moved away from home and I was living in a big house, a mansion, with a bunch of young guys who were my age, high school and college age, everybody had their own music in their own little room. And I had an incredible education, and there was music all around me. But today, when I work in my home here in Studio City, California, I have music on all the time, and I'm actually discovering more and more music than I ever did um, because of the internet, which didn't exist when I was a teenager, so I can find out more music through Spotify and YouTube and friends sending me MP3s of things they think I'll be interested in. So. I never had that peak of interest in music. Um, there was a, maybe 
a peak in my life of working on music, which is, you know, the two books, Music is Power and Becoming Jimi Hendrix, those were peaks where you not only listen to music all day, you are researching music all day and night. And it's very intense when you have a, uh, you know, a book deadline. And you say, oh my God, I've got to do all this research and type all this stuff by so-and-so a day. And sometimes that's a seven-day-a-week job. But Mm -hmm. even though it's exhausting, John, um, when you are finished and you look at the work and you feel pride in the work, you look back and say, I'm so glad I had that opportunity to do that. Um, yeah, so mu- I, I'd like to go into the music and mood stuff. Um, you mentioned the, bu- the book, uh, which doesn't have a working title yet, but where, uh, what have you been researching? Um, like, what, what areas have you been researching in? And, uh, you know, what have you, what themes are you working with right now for that? Actually, I have a chapter outline. I've got the first chapter. I've got an overview um, the interesting thing is I developed this idea about music and mood uh, years ago. And mm-hmm. um, I went to one of my agents that I work with and I said, um, this was, you know, um, quite a while ago, after Jimmy, but, um, you know, before any of the other books I've recently done, including uh, Music is Power. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in neuroscience, but I'm also interested in the everyday person's experience creatively with the act of listening to music, um, how it affects their memory and mood and so forth and so on. And the agent said, um, I don't think we can sell that unless you're a PhD or a psychologist or a cognitive neurologist. And I said, you're wrong. I have a way of writing about it in lay terms that will fascinate everybody. This is not a a, a project that is primarily scientific and research-driven nonfiction. It's going to have that, but it's also going to be a great read for anybody. And they said, well, we don't think so. So I put it aside. So now I'm picking it up again, and... um, not only have I already done some research, but I'm looking forward to doing more. Um, in terms of neuroscience, I'm a big fan of uh, Daniel Levitin. Mm-hmm. Um, this is your brain on music. And ironically, I've become friends with a UCLA neuroscientist and a professor of psychology named Dr. Robert Bilder, B-I-L-D-E-R. In fact, he came to my book launch for Music is Power here in Los Angeles. And he is a great guy to talk to because he not only is the chief of the psychology department for UCLA, he's head of like five different uh, institutes, including one called the Tannenbaum Family Center for the Study of Biology and Creativity. And he's a guy who, by the way, used to be a bass player and um, doesn't have much time for it anymore, but um, we talk a lot about bass players we like, especially jazz and jazz fusion. And he is a guy who I'm going to lean on when I want to ask questions about neuroscience. Um, 
These are areas that you might find in Oliver Sacks' Musicophilia, which had a mm -hmm. great impact on me. Um, you and I talked earlier in preparation for this interview about David Burns, How Music Works. And um, while I like the book a bit, and I'm in love with David Burns' work with Brian Eno, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, and uh, I also love the, the early talking heads, um, I, um, I actually think that I'm more interested in staking out different territory than what David Byrne has written about. It would include <laughs> anecdotes of, of people, um, like in Oliver Sacks's work, but also, for example, anecdotes of my own. And I can tell you very briefly that um, I had the idea really come to me when I was a teenager. I saw in a Newsweek article a soldier who returned from Vietnam, and he had PTSD, even though they didn't use that term in 1970 or so. And he was having mood swings and rages. He and his wife separated. They accidentally bump into each other at a dance in their hometown, even though they're separated. And the song, Color My World, it's a very schmaltzy kind of ballad by the group Chicago, comes on. And he asks her to dance and tells her he wants to live with her again and he needs another chance. And it's the song that they were in love with, the song that was their song that's playing. While he's saying to her, I'm sorry I couldn't control myself and my mood, please, let's try again. And she said, well, let's talk about it. And he went home that night thinking maybe I'll be able to get back together with my wife. And the song that we loved brought us together, and he dies in his sleep of a ruptured aorta. And I <laughs> said to myself, if you wrote this, no one would ever say, come on, even for fiction, that's ridiculous. And yet it happened. And all of a sudden, the song that I didn't really like very much, um, Color My World, took on a great importance because it was important to other people. And I was 14, 15 years old, and I started thinking, even if I don't like a song, it can change the life of somebody. I want to know more about that experience for other people. Um, so so I, I have an, a similar example from the book. Um, uh, it's called Strong Experiences with Music by... Alf Gabrielson, who is a uh, Swedish, I believe, um, psychologist. And uh, it's all about, like, you know, Maslow's peak experience style for music. And it's all, um, you know, people writing about their experiences. And it's all anecdotal. Um, but then he codes it. Uh, but, yeah, there was one person who uh, was basically brought down from the precipice of suicide by... Detroit Rock City by Kiss and that was like an instance for me of I've always kind of like thought lowly of Kiss but also you know just the fact it, it demonstrated to me that like taste your personal taste doesn't have anything to do with the way that somebody else is going to connect to that music you know yeah a perfect example I like that very much 
Uh, it's something that you hear all the time, even from when you were young, especially when you were young. Think about mm -hmm. the angst of the teenage years and the depression, the highs, the lows, the hormonal changes, and how important music is to you when you're that age. How many times have I heard about um, or seen um, the depiction of teenagers going, so-and-so a group or so-and-so an artist saved my life? It might mm -hmm. be literal or it might be figurative, right. you know, with the amount of teenage suicide in American culture, it could very well be literal in some cases. And, uh, and whether it's that or whenever I hear this song, I, I think back to my wedding or uh, something that was transcendent. I am so fascinated by those kinds of stories. And, you know, I liked some of Chicago's uh, first two albums. Their use of horns and the arrangements were, were very wonderful for a while before, in my opinion, I should say that more often, uh, they were very schmaltzy. And um, Saturday in the Park, I think it was the 4th of July, that's an awful song. Yeah, It made millions of dollars. I know it. Um... There were some really awful love songs they did. And I didn't like Color My World. But when I realized how important it was to that man and his woman uh, getting back together again and his tragic death, I just went, man, I have no right to criticize because everything that I don't like in the world, there is somebody who looks at it and goes... Yeah, that's really good. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't have to partake of it, and I can wish that the heavy metal and hip hop um, would somehow be more creative, not only in their lyrics, but even in what they do in terms of music. Um, I can wish that and still say, hey, I'm glad there are people out there who enjoy it, and they, and they maybe even need it. You channel their anger. I just don't want it to be as popular as it is. I've legitimately had transcendental experiences to metal shows. Uh, several several metal shows I've been to uh, have been um, ha have have put me in in states before. Well, tell me uh -huh. because this is what I'm writing about and fascinated by. What does that mean? You're in a state. What is the state like? Because I've been there myself with other kinds of music. What does that mean? Uh, well, so there's this band called White Mice that um, I've played. They played in our basement um, several, you know, many years ago when we were throwing basement shows, and we've pl I played with them uh, in a, I think in Athens, and both times they they they. They play this extremely harsh, sludgy music, and they have uh, large um, mice costumes on with these large mice mice heads that uh, have glowing red eyes, and uh, and it ha and it happened both times. It felt like I had just uh, taken a hallucinogen of some sort, and it was like, like immediately I was just like, "What am I even?" seeing right now it was just like a complete sensory weirdness um and and the weirdest part was that the second time i knew 
the effect that they had on me the first time. And I was like, surely I won't feel that again watching them. And immediately when they started playing, it immediately started again. And I was just like, this is so weird and pleasurable um, to just be watching this right now. Nice. Well, you know, theatricality and its presentation and music are, are something that's very important to me. And, and, um, I'm a big fan of Genesis, so we're talking about Peter Gabriel wearing fox heads and old, old man masks, and the lamb lies down on Broadway where he was what was called a slipper man. He had bubbles on his skin, um, and he found ways to sing despite having all these insane costumes. If you know anything about the band Genesis, you find out that the other members of the band thought he was out of his mind. And they just wanted to play their music. And by the way, why are we doing all of Peter's stuff? I have some really great songs, that kind of thing. But I can tell you, it was mesmerizing seeing him live. And now back to our conversation with Brad Schreiber author of Music is Power. Um, and as, as an adult who pursues art, um, I'm often frustrated by the social method. Just the general idea that, um, that art is not worth practicing if you're not making a living at it. I, I think, to be honest, that both my parents... Um, and this, this transcends our, our, our ethnic background or our religious background. My parents were both Jewish, but I was never very religious. I saw being a Jew as cultural rather than religious. But they said something that I know is a cliche when people talk about uh, Jewish culture, but I think is present in other cultures. And that is, that's nice, honey. What are you going to do for a living? I think that a lot of people um, who are especially uncreative can't fathom what it might take to make a living in a career as an artist. And it, it would hurt me to think that someone who already is creative and is a parent would not realize, hey, I tried to do it. You know, I succeeded on whatever level I succeeded upon. I can't quash the love and the passion my child has for the arts in any form if they really want to experience it. And I think, uh, not to be un-American, I love the United States and I do not want to live anywhere else, but I'm going to tell you I've been, I haven't traveled that much around the world, but I've been to all of Western Europe and I can tell you the support for the arts, both funding and sociologically, far outstrips what we have in this country. And what I don't like about America um, is that um, they worship celebrity in this country. And if you're not a celebrity and you're not quote-unquote successful and powerful, then you're to be derided. You know, you're, you're just, you're living in a daydream. Well, what is wrong with uh, attempting to be creative 
on your own level, even if you don't become a master or mistress of your trade. You don't have to be the biggest movie star, TV star, novelist, journalist, you know, um, artist, visual artist in the world. But you should never, ever stifle the creative impulse. Being creative is important on a level that is not at all frivolous. And especially for the psychology of the person who needs that. Some people are not artistic, but someone who needs it and has it stifled is going to basically have some sort of psychological imbalance. I often tell many friends of mine, I've known them for many years, they have succeeded sometimes very well in movies, TV, theater, music, um, and they're not doing anything anymore. And I always, when they say, hey, I'm not doing much anymore, I always ask them, as their friend, are you okay with that or do you miss it? And if they say I'm okay with it, I, I take them for their word. A couple of friends have said, yeah, I really miss it, but because of this, that, or the other thing, I feel incapable of making the time or doing, doing what has to be done. And I said, remember... If you love it and you miss it, you don't have to make money from it to benefit by it spiritually. And, you know, and it is something about spirit. It's also about your expressiveness. Look, in our culture, we battle against people who have undergone racism and sexism and homophobia. That is the idea of being accepted for who you are and not being rejected. Well, what happens on a, a societal level to someone who has proven that they are creatively very, very gifted and now no longer expresses it at all and misses it? That is going to impact their mood, their psychology. It could impact their health if they don't know how to work with it. It could impact their relationships with other people. And the, this, again, is the broader context of wanting to be creative and not serving it in any way whatsoever. Now, the more, and I'll kind of close on that little diatribe with the idea. I'd love to hear your thought. What happens if you are being creative, but you are not making a living anymore. You're not a star, or you're not the person who you were, or you have lost your contacts, or you have gone out of fashion in the art form that you mastered. What happens then when people go, yeah, you were somebody back in the so-and-so era, but we don't care about you anymore. And I think that way, the way I have dealt with that is being interested in all forms of writing. You know, I've done TV, film, theater, journalism, and books. Um, I've also done directing and producing and other things. Not a lot, but a little bit. And I enjoy those things. So the adaptability of the artist is something that should obviate the need to say, hey, I just can't make a living anymore in my artwork, and I am giving up any creative pursuit. You shouldn't be able to say that 
if you are willing to put in time and can adapt in some way. I think the other side of that is that people don't want to tell that story. You know, uh, people people feel ashamed of of the fact that they've lost that interest and they don't want to talk about what they consider to be their failure. Um, and I think that's another problem that goes that goes hand in hand with the fear of criticism and of uh, being derided. Yes, I agree completely. And as for this, you know, question you had earlier. It's a, I, maybe I avoided it psychologically because I don't have an answer and it's a very <laughs> difficult question. And the question is, when people look at a work of art, that they think about how long it took to create it? And that is, to me, a fascinating question. Why don't we look at something and say, you know, it's not my kind of thing, but uh, I wonder how long it took them to do this. I actually am very fascinated to learn how long things gestate. You know, you know, especially in the movie world. You know, it took me 20 years to get this movie made. You know, it's not unusual to hear that. Um, in terms of uh, popular novelists, the idea is you do a book a year. You know, you do the the writing in six months, you, you do the editing with an editor, or hopefully you don't have much editing. You do promotion with the publicist, and you work with your agent to market it. And by the way, what's your next book going to be? That's the way you make a living in publishing. But there are many incredible artists who waited 10, 15, 20 years to write a great novel. You know, and some of them died before they got to um, a second or third novel, you know. Um, so what, do we even think about that? Do we even think there's something special about someone who didn't have the discipline or the uh, impulse to do many things in the art world, but they did this one thing and it was a lot of work. And the other part of this is... The artist who creates, it's going to be a value, and it's not going to be a value in his or her lifetime. Which kills me. You know, for every time that I'm mad at somebody because they haven't produced or published my work, I think, okay, I've won about a half a dozen awards, and I've been published and produced a little bit. Um, what about Van Gogh? What about all the people who um, were discovered after they died, you know? Or they, they were geniuses and they were cut off early in life. What about David Foster Wallace? It's a really excellent question about the value of work beyond its perceived notion and its money and what the critics say. If you write a 700-page novel and maybe it doesn't even get published, what about the work that you put in? What about the passion? What about the suffering that you went through while you were writing it and re-experiencing themes that maybe connect to you personally? I can't even begin to put a number on that value. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. 
We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to DW, you can use the donate button on the rss.com page of this podcast or visit talkingwriting.com slash donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com.